Well, we continue in our series on Christology this morning. And if you didn't get a bulletin, they're back there and there's an outline for you to look at if you'd like. And the topic that we're going to study today in this series is possibly, possibly the most important topic in all the Bible. If we had to limit it to one most important, it might be the thing that we're talking about today. Now, we talked two weeks ago about the deity of Christ. Last week we covered the humanity of Christ. And this week we're going to talk about the death of Christ. We can rightly think that the history of redemption finds its climax in the death of Christ. The entirety of the story of everything that happens comes to fruition at Calvary. Everything before Calvary looks forward to Calvary, and everything after Calvary looks back at it. It is, without doubt, the most important event in human history. And on a topic so important and so vast, it's really difficult to decide exactly how to handle it. You really could look at any book in Scripture and point to the death of Christ. And so I thought I would go a particular direction with the topic, one that fits in with some of what we've been talking about in 1 John in that letter, because we're going to get back to it here in just a couple weeks. And it's something that I think that you will definitely find helpful in your heart and in your mind this morning. I want to look into Scripture with you all and see how it is That Jesus' death on the cross is an effective death. An effective death. I want to talk about the what we call the efficacy of the death of Christ. You may say, I've never heard that word before, efficacy. That's a that's a new term to me, maybe. Well, here's a very, very simplistic. And maybe even silly way to think about what I mean when I say that the death of Jesus Christ is an effective one. This is a very crude illustration. Perhaps some of you have had the opportunity, maybe with your grandchildren, of watching the kids' TV show known as Thomas and Friends. The little blue engine. And he's a a cheeky blue train engine that teaches us valuable lessons of morality as they go around the island of Sodor. And if you're a fan of this show for young kids, you know that there is one goal that every engine has. It's, it's their compelling desire in everything that these little engines do. Thomas, Percy, Gordon, all the rest. My kids probably know them by heart because we used to watch that a lot. They all want to be known by the superintendent as being what? Does anybody know? Guys, you remember? Exactly. They want to be useful engines. That's their goal. I want to be a useful engine. They want to be called useful. They want the superintendent to say, Thomas, you're a useful engine. Or to put another way, put it another way, they all want to be effective engines. They want to be known as trains that do their jobs reliably and safely and effectively. They want to be known as those who do well what they're supposed to do. 
Now, I'm clearly not trying to bring the death of Christ down to the level of Thomas, the, the train engine. But I'm trying to make it clear what I mean by calling it an effective death. I mean that the death of Christ actually accomplished what it was supposed to do. I mean that God looks at the death of his son and he is pleased to say that it satisfied and accomplished everything it was supposed to do. We read in our scripture reading at the beginning from Matthew chapter 1 that he would, he would indeed save his people from their sins. He is an effective savior. And so in this way, we say that the death of Jesus Christ was an effective death. So the question for us is, what did God intend for Jesus to accomplish in his death? What is it that would make this death effective? What was the death of Christ supposed to do and then certainly did it? Well, I have three things to give you from Scripture that are the things that Jesus' death accomplished. 2,000 years ago, while he was on the cross in that event... All of these things were actually accomplished in that event because it was the most effective event in all of human history. These are not the things that he made possible. These are not the things that rest contingent upon other things that happen later in time. These are three things that were actually and definitively and finally done once Christ died. And I'll give them all to you up front. There are blanks for them in the bulletin. First of all, Christ's death completed his righteousness. And then I'll show you how they're true from Scripture. First of all, Christ's death completed his righteousness. Secondly, Christ's death blessed the world. And then thirdly, Christ's death redeemed his people. Those are the three things. There are many other things that we could possibly look at, but those are the three that I want to consider this morning. So first of all, Christ's death completed his righteousness. His death completed his righteousness, filled up his righteousness. And what I mean by this is not really complicated. When Jesus died, he did so out of obedience to the will of the Father. And as such, it was a final act of obedience. It was a, a summation, pinnacle act of obedience that represented all of his acts of obedience. Last Sunday, we considered for a little bit the text in Philippians chapter 2. You can go ahead and turn there. And it's a great text of scripture concerning the fact that Jesus emptied himself in becoming a man. But also in that text, we have for us clearly stated that Jesus' death was a final and important act of obedience to the will of God. Philippians 2 and verse 8, if you're there, we read this. That being found in human form... He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's entire point in the verses surrounding verse 8 is to make it clear that Jesus certainly became a man while also retaining his deity. And we talked about that last week. And the paramount example of his humanity lay in the fact that he died. 
That's the point that Paul's making. He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. That's there in verse 7. But that doesn't fully give us a picture of his humanity. The thing that makes his humanity so real and dear to us is the fact that he died. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later in the next point. The thing that each of us face as an absolute certainty in life, it was a certainty for Jesus as well. We say that the two things that are certain in life are death and taxes. Jesus died and Jesus paid taxes. But the difference between Jesus dying and us dying is that we don't die out of obedience. We die because God says, it's your time, and then we die. We die because God, in his sovereign providence, deems that it is our time to go. We do nothing at all to lengthen or shorten our number of days. The number of times we inhale and exhale is forever fixed in the mind of God. The exact date and time of our death is known only to God and is unchangeable in his sight. And since God is the life giver, he is also the life taker. Job knew this. We read in Job 121 where he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And God takes our life from us without our permission. He doesn't ask us if it's a convenient time for us or not. But Jesus gave up his life in obedience to God's will. His death was different. Jesus chose to die at the appointed time. He became obedient even to the obedience of willingly dying. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2. And what the apostle is making evident by a couple of things in that text is the fact that Jesus was actually obedient not just to death but to everything that the Father asked him to do. And if he could obey, even in laying down his life when he was told to do so, then he could obey in everything else. Paul was using this as a representative example of a life of obedience to everything else. If Jesus can obey in that, dying when he's told to die, that means he's able to obey in absolutely everything else that the Father asked him to do. So we see that his death completes his obedience. Which is to say that his death completes his righteousness. John, in his gospel, does much to say the same thing. John chapter 10, if you want to turn over there. In John chapter 10, beginning in verse 11, we read this. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
This charge I have received from my Father. Five times in those verses, Jesus says that he lays down his life. He doesn't merely succumb without resistance to the will of others. He doesn't say that he'll eventually stop using his power to prevent himself from being killed. No, he says that there was coming a day in which he would actually lay his life down willingly, decisively, and obediently. And we know it to be an act of obedience because of what Jesus says there at the end of verse 18 there in John 10. He says, this charge I have received of whom? Of my father. I do this because the father has told me to do so. What duty did he receive from the father? The beginning of the verse says that his charge from the father was to both lay down and take up his life. If Jesus obeys the will of the father and thus completes his obedience then he has fulfilled the charge of the Father. And he does so when he lays down his life on his own ability. Why is this obedience and righteousness of Christ so important? Why does Jesus take great lengths to talk about it? Why does Paul go to such lengths to to delve into the depths of this topic? Well, the reason is because we are counting on his righteousness to count for us. We need that perfect righteousness or else we are hopeless before God. This is what Paul did. In Philippians 3 and verse 9, he says that his only hope was to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30 that Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification and redemption. Jesus became our righteousness. And then in a great text in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul definitively tells us why Jesus' obedient righteousness is very important for us. It's exchanged to our account. Paul says there, for our sake... He made him, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We could not become the righteousness of God if Jesus himself was not the righteousness of God. We become whatever Christ is in that great exchange. Our only hope to meeting up to God's standard is Christ. Our only hope of having God's favor is Christ having God's favor. We hide in him and in his righteousness and not our own. And so we rejoice in the fact that Jesus' death completes his righteousness. Because his righteousness becomes our legal righteousness as we are found in him. There's a question that may have entered your minds before. I know it's entered mine. I had a A professor once asked me to write a paper on this. Why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't he just pay for sin on the cross and then say it was finished and then, okay, fix his body up and come down? He paid for sin. Why did he have to die? There are a number of answers to that question, and one of them is that point that we just made. If Jesus did not die then we would not have had a perfectly obedient sacrifice. 
He had to die in order to satisfy God's demands, in order to do what the Father demanded that he do, in order to be perfectly righteous. If we didn't have a Savior who died in obedience to the Father, as Paul says in Philippians 2, then we don't have a perfect Savior to declare us righteous before God. Yet there's a second reason why Jesus had to die. The second reason why Jesus had to die, the second benefit, is that his death blessed the world. Not only that his death fulfilled his obedience, but also that his death blessed the entire world. Now remember, we're talking about what the death of Christ actually accomplished, not what it potentially accomplished. In the same way that his death certainly and actually and effectively completed his righteousness. In the same way, so also his death certainly and actually and effectively blessed everyone in the world without distinction. Everyone who lived before the cross, everyone who lived after the cross and during the cross was blessed in this way. There are things which the death of Christ accomplished which are given as a gracious gift of God to the entire world. As an evidence of his mercy and love towards the world, God willed for Jesus to die so that he might bless everyone in certain and distinct ways. There's a list that I've come up with in the past that's very long on this of things that the death of Christ did for the world. But I'm just going to give you four of them. Four ways in which Christ's death blessed the world, and in no particular order. First of all, Christ's death evidences the fact that he is the Son of God. Christ's death evidences to the whole world the fact that he is the Son of God. It declares his sonship. This is to say that the death of Christ announces to the world who God's only Son is. Remember in the Old Testament, we had these little shadowy references to the Lord's anointed. People thinking, I wonder who this is going to be. Well, the death of Christ, the cross, made that clear. That it is the Son, Christ, who is that person. John the Apostle writes about this blessing to the world in 1 John 5, verses 5 to 12. If you want to turn there, I'm going to read verses 5 and 6, so that we can see what John is saying about how the death of Christ announces to the world who he is. Verses 5 and 6 of 1 John 5 says this, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood, And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. It's a little complicated argument that John is making here. And we'll look at it in great detail when we get to it in months to come. But in verse 5, John is talking about believing that Jesus is the Son of God. And then in verse 6, he says that there are things that testify or evidence the fact that Jesus is the Son of God on whom to believe. One is that he came by water. I believe that refers to his baptism. And then another is the spirit who testifies. The spirit of truth testifies in the heart of men that Jesus is the son of God. That's the third evidence. But then there's a middle evidence right there. 
The middle evidence that we see right there is that Jesus came by, what does it say? The blood. Jesus came by the blood. The common understanding of this reference is that Jesus came by dying. He came by water. He came by the testimony of the Spirit. And He came by blood. And that gives evidence to the fact that He indeed is the Son. In his dying, we have testimony to the fact that he indeed is the unique Son of God in whom to believe. So the death of Christ blesses the world by evidencing the fact that he is the Son of God on whom to believe. And that verse there in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6 makes it clear. Because he came by blood. He came by death. And that evidences the fact that he indeed is the Son on whom to believe. Secondly... The second reason, the second blessing to the whole world is that Christ's death identifies him with all men. This is similar to what I was saying about the fact that Christ died like we die. His death identifies him with all men. Hebrews 2 and verse 9 is a stunning verse in the midst of an equally stunning chapter about the person and ministry of Christ. And in this verse, Hebrews 2.9, we find the following thing to be true of Jesus. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. It says this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So he might taste death for everyone. Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while, the verse says, which is to say he became a man. And one of the purposes of becoming found in this lower state is so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is not saying that he died an atoning and a substitutionary death for everyone. It's not saying he took away everyone's sins and dying. It's simply saying that to benefit everyone, Jesus would taste what death is like. That's a pretty amazing thing. Even for those who are lost. Even for those who never will will turn to Christ. Even for these people. Christ tasted death as a measure of God's grace to them. God gifted to everybody on the planet who must die as a result of their sin. God gave as a gift to everyone. His son would have a taste of what that death is like. He would take upon him something that everyone was going to have to taste. So that's the second certain and real blessing for the whole world that the death of Christ accomplished. His death provides him with an identification point for everyone. Jesus knows down to the most awful part of what it is to be human, what it actually is to be human. Because he tasted death. Thirdly, the third blessing to the whole world, Christ's death disarms and openly shames Satan and his demons. Christ's death disarms and openly shames Satan and his demons. And as is the case for all these things in this section, this is a reality that is true regardless 
of whether or not a person has come to Christ for salvation. This is an objective blessing to the whole world. That Satan and his forces have been both disarmed and openly shamed. And I think it becomes clear what I mean by this when we read what Paul says. In Colossians chapter 2 verses 14 and 15 if you want to turn there. Colossians 2 verses 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul says this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, part of that verse deals with the next main point that we're going to look at. But verse 15 makes it really clear that the cross of Christ which is a way to express the fact that he died, that that reality has disarmed and has put to shame the rulers and authorities. And what Paul's referring to there by rulers and authorities are those who have power and authority in the spiritual realm. He's talking about the powers of darkness that seek to persuade men of error and of the false goodness of sin. But according to what Paul says... Do those rulers and authorities truly have an effective power? Does their power have the final say in the end? Not at all. Their ability is weak and ultimately it is ineffective because of the death of Christ, because of his cross. And this is a universal grace for all men because of the death of Christ. It's not to say that Satan and his forces can't do anything to harden the lost. It's just that they can't do everything that they wish they could do. They're not as effective as they would be otherwise. A a brief example. I had a very good basketball coach in high school. And he used to make us do this drill where we had to play defense when we were practicing with our hands behind our backs. And so it would get us to maximize our movement backwards and forwards. Make us fast on our feet. Now, we could put together some semblance of defense, but guess what happened every time with the team, the the side of the team that had the ball? They'd score because we couldn't stop the ball. We couldn't block it. We could get in their way a little bit, but we couldn't really stop them. Well, it's as if Christ's death has bound Satan's hands behind his back. He can still defend sinners from coming to Christ, and he does that skillfully. He hinders them, he blocks them, he deceives them, but he's not fully equipped to do so. He cannot actually prevent someone from coming to Christ whom Christ is bringing to himself. When Christ calls a sinner, Satan cannot stop that sinner from coming. And the reason this is so is because of the true effectiveness of the death of Christ. His death does save. And for those who are saved by his death, Satan cannot stop them. He has been rendered ineffective by means of the effective death of Christ. And what that means for the world is that they have an enemy in Satan who they can see has been disarmed and let out in open shame. 
Now, there's much more that we would need to say about the working of Satan and his demons, and perhaps we'll do a series on that sometime on the topic of spiritual warfare. I think it's really important for us. But for our point this morning, we need to clearly understand that with respect to Satan's ability to keep sinners from coming to Christ, the fact that Christ has died has made it such that those for whom he died can never be stopped by Satan. It's impossible. So not only has God blessed the world in the death of Christ by evidencing Jesus' sonship, by identifying his humanity, and by disarming Satan, but fourthly, God also has blessed the world in the death of Christ by providing a visible remedy for sin. He has provided a visible remedy for sin. And this is perhaps the most gracious blessing that God has given to everyone in the world. We read of this Read of this blessing in John 3, and you can turn there with me. And we actually talked about this point at length just a few weeks ago when we considered the truth of 1 John 2 and verse 2. Remember where John said that he is the propitiation not for our sins only, but also for the whole world. Meaning that he is the, the atonement that God has put forward for the world to see. Not that he saves everyone but that he's visible to everyone. God doesn't hide the atonement of Christ from some people and only reveal it to others. No, he's put it visibly on display for the entire world to apprehend. And we see it clearly that that's the case in John chapter 3. In this chapter, we have one of the most familiar verses in the Bible, but it's, it's often misapplied, I fear. Look at John chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, where John says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So here's the context. You've got that thing there about Moses lifting up the serpent. And I went over this a couple weeks ago. Numbers chapter 21. We read the story of how the children of Israel were bitten by the fiery serpents. And everyone who was bitten by the serpent was going to die. So the people cried to Moses for deliverance lest they all die because of the bite. And Moses went to the Lord, and the Lord said, put up this bronze serpent on a pole in the middle of the camp, and everyone who will look will be healed, and everyone who does not look will die. And we have to remember that that is the context for John 3.16, from what John or Jesus himself here says. Jesus is saying that in the same way that Moses would lift up the serpent, he would be lifted up. Jesus would be lifted up to die in the same way that the serpent was lifted up in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. The death of Christ is to have a similar blessed function for those who are bitten with the bite of sin as the bronze serpent was to have for those who were bitten with that serpent. And what is that purpose? The purpose of the serpent for everyone in Israel is to provide the visible remedy for sin. Moses put the serpent there and he declared to everyone, look and live. 
And so God put Christ on a cross for the world to see and now conveys to everyone through the world, look and live. I've put for you, all sinners everywhere, I've put for you the visible remedy for sin. You can't help but see it plainly in the pages of my word. That Christ crucified is the only way to escape the penalty for your sin. But sadly, that doesn't mean everyone will look. Not everyone looked at the bronze serpent. There were some who died in their stubbornness. And not everyone will look to Christ. Some will know for years and years and years that he is the only way. But in their stubbornness, they will not truly look. God has certainly, though, blessed the world because he has given them his son on a cross as the visible remedy for sin. All are to know that this son of man raised up on the cross to die is the only remedy for sin. And because of the death of Christ, this remedy has been made clear to all. His death hasn't saved everyone, but has made the only way of salvation clear to everyone. So just to review, those four general blessings out of many others to the whole world are these. That Christ's death evidences the fact that he is the Son of God. Christ's death identifies him with all men. Christ's death disarms and openly shames Satan and his demons. And then fourthly and most wonderfully, Christ's death provides a visible remedy for sin for all to see. And again, those are things that all happened at the death of Christ. Those things happen regardless of what we do or don't do. But now we come to my favorite part. Thirdly, we see how the death of Christ is effective specifically for the church. Specifically for his people. So the third certain accomplishment of the death of Christ is this. Christ's death redeemed his people. Christ's death redeemed his people. This is a unique thing that Christ's death does only for his people, only for his chosen, only for those of us who are saved by his grace. The blessings that I just mentioned that the death of Christ has given to the whole world, they are indeed great blessings. But none of those blessings actually can save a sinner. Think about it. Seeing the evidence for Jesus' sonship does not save you. Just because you can see, oh yeah, that Jesus is probably the Son of God. Okay, but that doesn't save you just by seeing that connection. Identifying with the humanity of Christ doesn't save you. We all do that when we die. And that doesn't save us. Facing a disarmed Satan doesn't save you. And merely recognizing the only remedy for sin doesn't save you. Again, there were many in Israel who heard that the bronze serpent could save them, but that doesn't save them, just that they know it. So the death of Christ must still do more. It must do more for us. It must do something unique for those who are indeed saved by it. There must be a benefit from the death of Christ for his people that is different from the benefits to the world at large. 
And what I mean by this point is what Scripture clearly teaches concerning the certainty of the atonement of Christ. His death has provided a certain redemption. There's no potentiality in his redemption, in his atonement. There's only certainty. The death of Christ actually saves. The death of Christ certainly redeems. Just listen now as I read for you what some of the writers of the New Testament said about the atoning death of Christ. Just listen to these verses and let the the plain clarity of their truth speak to your mind and heart. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. I've still got a few more, but I hope you're noticing The way the language of the New Testament conveys this death is a completed action. It has already happened. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Hebrews 10.10 We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Hebrews 13.12 So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then Revelation 5.9 Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then going back to John 10, we have the words of Jesus himself, John 10, 14 to 15. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay my life down for the sheep. Let me ask you a question in thinking about those verses that I just read. Is there anything conditional or provisional in those verses about the death of Christ? Is there anything potential about it? Or is Scripture teaching that he has actually accomplished something in his death regarding our atonement? Let me just say some of those phrases again. Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us. 
you were ransomed. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He himself bore our sins in his body. Christ also suffered once for sins. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. By your blood, you ransomed people for God. If we put together what these verses are saying, we have an indication that Jesus offered a one-time sacrifice for sins that actually accomplished the following things. His death actually accomplished redemption, ransom, forgiveness, sanctification, propitiation, reconciliation, death to sin, and life to righteousness. All those things were actually accomplished when he died. Jesus did not die in order to make all those things possible. He died in order to make them actual. He died in order to make them yours and mine if we are his sheep. He did not die in order to make them yours and mine if we would only do the necessary thing to actuate them in time. Can you imagine what scripture would sound like in our ears if it was worded this way? If scripture says, Christ might have redeemed us from the curse of the law by possibly becoming a curse for us. Or, he himself might have borne our sins in his body on the tree. By his wounds you have possibly been healed. Or, if there was something left in those verses for us to seal the deal. If there was something provisional. He did all those things if, and then something for you. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might do all that he could to bring us to God. Or, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to do all that he could in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And there's a little bit left for you to do. I'm afraid, sadly, that there has been much teaching in the church, at least in my lifetime, that has portrayed the death of Christ to be no more than the following. It's as if when Christ died, he made a sacrifice that was for sins in the sense that it could potentially be for your sins. The credit of payment for sin sits in a bank somewhere, and all you have to do is ask for it, and it will be applied to you. But if you don't ask for it, then all this credit that Christ has earned on your behalf is just discarded, and you have to suffer for your sins that Christ already suffered for. You are just too proud to ask for his payment. What kind of atoning death is that? If that were the case, then Christ's work isn't actually done because he has to stand outside the bank like the spinny sign people saying, come in here and get your sins paid for by me. He has to continually do that and woo us into the the bank of his merit. His work isn't done. He wouldn't then go sit down at the right hand of the Father because his task was complete. No, it was all done. Christ died and was raised, and then the Father said to him, Sit at my right hand. The work of the Son was finished. He paid for actual sins in full, such that his sheep would be reconciled to God. As we read in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, 
His name will be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Christ's death effectively atoned for the sins of his sheep. Let me read from a book by one of my favorite Bible teachers of all time, the late Dr. R.C. Sproul. He wrote this. The atonement Christ made on the cross was real and effectual. It wasn't just a hypothetical atonement. It was an actual atonement. He didn't offer a hypothetical expiation for the sins of his people. Their sins were expiated, which means to be done away with, removed. He didn't give a hypothetical propitiation for our sins. He actually placated God's wrath towards us. By contrast, according to the other view, the atonement is only a potentiality. Jesus went to the cross, paid the penalty for sin, and made the atonement. But now he sits in heaven, wringing his hands and hoping that someone will take advantage of the work he performed. This is foreign to the biblical understanding of the triumph and victory Christ achieved in his atoning death. So we say that the death of Christ was an effective atonement. It effectively redeemed those whom he was supposed to redeem. He actually bore the sins that he was supposed to bear. He actually offered his body in death for those he was supposed to offer it for. And thus the Holy Spirit then works in concert with the Son and with the Father in order to regenerate those for whom Christ died. The Father says, go die for these people. The Son says, I did it. The Spirit then in time comes and brings them to life. The Trinity working together. Each of these sinners will be brought to Christ such that they will respond in faith to believe. I wonder if any of you have ever wrestled with thoughts of whether or not you are really forgiven of your sin. I know we all have at some point. Could it be that you wrestle with this because you have thought that God's forgiveness of you actually rests on your shoulders? That you have forgiveness only because you asked for it. And if you don't have it, unless you ask or something like that, or if you don't, Make yourself look presentable to him. What questions of doubt this would put in your mind? What if I wasn't sincere enough? What if I didn't ask in the right way? What if I forgot to confess something? These are all me-centered things that could rob us of our assurance. But when we think on the fact that Christ's death for his people was an actual atonement, that it was a certain redemption, does that not give you all the assurance that you need? None of the atoning work of Jesus is up to you. It was settled 2,000 years ago on the cross. Christ died for your sins, period. So when you know the delights of saving faith, when you have your faith fixed firmly on Christ and on him alone and not yourself, when you cling, albeit very weakly, to Christ as your only hope, then you can know for sure that your cling of faith alone is necessarily complemented with the overwhelming grace of the death of Christ for you. You're holding on to the only thing that can actually save you. You can't save you, but what you're holding on to is the only thing that can, the death of Christ. I'll close with one more quote from 
Dr. Sproul. He's done just so much to help my thinking on this topic, and I hope he can be helpful for you as well. He says this in a different book. One of the sweetest statements from the lips of Jesus in the New Testament is this. From Matthew 25. Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There is a plan of God designed for your salvation. It is not an afterthought or an attempt to correct a mistake. Rather, from all eternity, God determined that he would redeem for himself a people, and that which he determined to do was, in fact, accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ, his atonement on the cross. Your salvation has been accomplished by a Savior who is not merely a potential Savior, but who is an actual Savior. One who did for you what the Father determined he should do. He is your surety, your mediator, your substitute, your redeemer. He atoned for your sins on the cross. So may we meditate on this great death of Christ as we worship him as the baby in the manger this coming week. May we not forget that what he lived and then died to do was a full and certain accomplishment of atonement for our sins. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for his death. Thank you that it is effective and that it leaves no work for us to accomplish. As Paul says, that works are excluded. There's nothing for us to do because there's nothing we can do. And one of the reasons is because we can't improve upon perfection. Christ's death was a perfect atonement. And we can't make it any better. We receive it by faith and we rest in it. We put all of our hope in it. It either carries us to your arms or nothing can. We trust in the death of Christ alone and help us to remember that in this season and help us to remember it all our lives. We pray this in his wonderful name. Amen.